I'll invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read through to verse 16. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Throughout the Bible, we are told of the necessity to contend for the faith. Uh, We are certainly told that we are to be people of truth in a general sense, Uh, Lying is sinful. We are to bear witness to all that is true, expose error wherever we may find it, not go along with the lies of others, and so on. But we're not just to be for truth in some general sense, but we are called specifically to contend for the faith, to contend for the very essence of Christianity. Jude, verse 3 is maybe the, one of the primary passages or verses we might think of in this regard. And it says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in on notice, and Jude says that they were perverting the grace of God. Uh, Jesus himself warned about false Christs. He said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus told us we're to be on guard against false Christs with their false gospel, their false Christianity, their false religion, their impersonation of true religion. We might also think of Paul's admonition to Timothy The beginning of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, where he tells Timothy, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then into chapter 2, Paul actually tells Timothy to entrust that same deposit with other faithful men as well. So again, over and over, we are told in Scripture that those of us who believe the gospel have a stewardship with it. We are called to believe it, yes, and then also to preserve it, to guard it, to protect its message, and to, of course, proclaim it in its purity. This is, of course, a task that has various ditches and dangers as we go about it on the one hand. There's a temptation to want to fight over everything. But then on the other hand, there are those who have no desire whatsoever, no stomach for any sort of confrontation about this at all, for any kind of polemic, uh, no will to contend or to make any necessary judgments whatsoever. In this letter that we are going through, this letter to the Galatians, We are witnessing Paul himself do this very task of contending for the faith. He does this in a number of ways. Uh, We saw, we've been seeing he was defending his own apostleship and his own ministry. And the reason he's doing that is not because his honor is at stake and he's offended personally, but rather because it is tied intimately to this question of what is the gospel? What is this faith? 
He has shown that the gospel that he preached was given to him by the Lord himself, directly by the risen Christ. And yet it was also something that when he did finally meet up with the apostles, they were actually in agreement together. They gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. We saw that last week. And, and they were all in agreement about what the gospel is, that one is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And yet now, in the text that we just read, Paul now recounts a later event after that time he'd met with Peter, James, and John, when he did, in fact, need to confront none other than Peter, the preeminent apostle. And he did this, he confronted Peter in order to contend for the faith. Because as he says here, the gospel itself is what was at stake. Throughout this letter to the Galatians, Paul is not only just recounting how he was defending the gospel on these occasions, but he's doing this in order to stir up these churches he's writing to that they might go and do likewise. It is very clear that Paul wishes when the Judaizers showed up with their corruptions of the gospel message that these churches would have just kicked them to the curb, so to speak, and had nothing to do with them, would not have listened to them at all. We've read of Paul's exasperation. He's, he's at a loss in some sense, he's saying. Uh, he's he's um, bewildered by how quickly they've gone to desert this gospel and God's message of grace within it. There was a responsibility, he is telling them, that these churches had as churches, as churches made up of Members and officers, elders and deacons and members, everybody together, a responsibility collectively to preserve the pure teaching of the gospel. I think when we find in the New Testament, certainly elders are called to lead the charge in defending the faith and and preaching the gospel purely. But it is also on everybody to be alert and to be aware. Uh, It's noted that Paul writes this letter to the Galatian Churches, the churches in this region of Galatia, not simply to the elders in those churches, but to the churches as a whole. He wants everybody alert. It's collectively our task together to be on guard and contend for the faith and preserve the pure teaching of the gospel. This is a stewardship that is true, was true not only for the churches in Galatia, but it's through for true for all churches throughout all times. We likewise today are called to this task. It is an inescapable duty and privilege that we have to preserve this treasure that we have been given, that we possess. And so as we examine these verses, and we're going to look at verses 11 to uh, 14 today, I want to look at some of what is required in this defense of the gospel. This is not exhaustive about everything there is to say about uh, contending for the faith. But I want to focus on three keys for defending the gospel that we find here. So number one, faithfully contending for the gospel requires impartial judgment and confrontation. Faithfully contending for the gospel requires impartial judgment and confrontation. We need impartiality in this matter. So after telling us in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 that Paul, Peter, James, and John, they were all united in the gospel when they did meet up together. Uh, they, They gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They were all in agreement. Titus was not made to be circumcised. That tells us they were all in agreement that one is justified by faith alone, not works of the law. They were all in agreement upon that. And yet now Paul tells us about this other account of a time when Peter came to Antioch, this city and this church where Paul had served and had spent much time. This was the church, if you recall, uh, in which uh, they, 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 um, uh, this, the Holy Spirit told these people probably through a prophet in Acts chapter 13 to set aside uh, Saul, Paul, and Barnabas. And then they were sent on what we call Paul's first missionary journey in which he went to, among other places, Galatia. So this is a a place that was near to to Paul's heart. 
And Peter had arrived to Antioch. And then it says in verse 11, but when Cephas, and that's just Peter's Aramaic name, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is, we're maybe somewhat familiar with this verse, but this is a remarkable statement and a, and a, a remarkable reality. Try to imagine this, this scene, this clash of these two individuals. Uh, Paul says he confronted Peter to his face. He didn't just talk about him or complain behind his back, but went directly to him. And what's more, we find in verse 14 that Paul's words of rebuke were actually in public. This was a public confrontation. He says he, the, the words when he rebuked Peter was before them all in verse 14, we're told. Peter's public actions left him condemned and this was evident, and so Paul publicly called Peter out on this. What Paul has been arguing up until now is that the gospel is God's message to man. And so we don't have any right to mess with it. Our task is to understand it, to believe it, of course, and then to proclaim it and to defend it in its purity, this good news. And so we are to test everything by God's word in the Old and New Testaments. Is the message that we are hearing that is being called gospel, that is being called good news, does it fit with what Scripture reveals to us, with what God has revealed to us, is this good news? Paul has even said back in chapter 1 that if he or an angel from heaven were to preach a different gospel, then such a one is to be accursed. One's status does not matter at this point. Whether one is an angel, whether it's Paul himself, whether it's another apostle, whether it's a pastor or an elder, whether the title is Pope, whether it is a televangelist, whether it is a famous author or famous podcaster, someone who is really, really well-educated, none of this gets anyone a pass when it comes to the gospel. If it is corrupted, then rebuke becomes necessary. Nobody is above it by virtue of their status or position or even past faithfulness. Paul lived by this. He said in verse 6, Chapter 2, that God shows no partiality. And clearly, neither did Paul either. And neither should the Galatian churches, and neither should we. Further, it's worth reminding ourselves here that Paul and Peter really were on the same team here. Uh, back in verse 8, as we saw last week, Paul said that it was the same God that had been at work in Peter's ministry to the Jews, as was working in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Now, Peter was not some distant figure in some distant land in some distant denomination. He was not someone that Paul had the luxury of criticizing or critiquing, knowing that really it would have very little, if any, ripple effect among his people around him. This was all occurring in a I think what we might call a home church for Paul, so to speak. This potentially would be a very difficult, very uncomfortable, very awkward situation. There would be much potential for disaster for Paul, for Paul to confront Peter in this way. If Peter did not respond well, you could easily see so many people were in error with Peter at this point, Paul apparently is one of the only ones willing to stand up and say anything here. And if this doesn't go well, Paul could be the one on the outs. Everybody thinking badly of Paul because how dare he? When he was still persecuting the church, Peter was being faithful and being threatened and so on. How could he dare do this? There's all kinds of reasons Paul could tell himself to just avoid this altogether. However, duty called for the apostle. And so he soldiered up. And he opposed Peter because it was what the situation demanded. This kind of impartiality is key. 
when it comes to contending for the gospel. To be impartial means that we do not show favoritism to others. Error can creep in from anywhere. Remember when when Paul in Acts chapter 20 was talking to the Ephesian elders, he warned them that fierce wolves would arise from among themselves. Uh, For sure, meaning within the church and possibly even from within the elders themselves. Error can creep in from all kinds of different places. And if and when we find it, no matter who it is in, we must not abide it, but rather we must deal honestly with it, even if it is from within our own church, in our own pulpit, even if it is among our own friends or within our family members, or we find it perhaps in our favorite preachers or authors. When Martin Luther was commenting on this text, he quoted Jesus' words from Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ and his gospel comes first. There's to be an impartiality here. I think this is something that is very difficult. I think it's difficult for many of us. I think within what we might call conservative evangelicalism, I think this is a very difficult thing. There are many who seem very unwilling to judge impartially. Some who are willing to be critical of certain people and individuals in other groups, but not so within our more immediate circles. And this simply cannot be the way we go about this. We cannot be those who provide cover for people if there really is error. But we must be prepared to deal very honestly. I know that many of you have experienced fallout over the gospel, over contending for the faith, with friends, in your own families, with former church family, And so on. Many of you have had authors and preachers that have been very helpful to you, and they have in time gone off the rails, and you've had to wrestle with that and no longer listen or read their their materials. But be encouraged that it is right to stand for the truth of the gospel, even if and where you would suffer for it. Impartiality is important. And just maybe before moving on as well, uh, also note from here that we shouldn't be offended if we are questioned about this matter ourselves or or even rebuked. Um, Just consider that if it was required for Peter at this point, uh, we shouldn't go about assuming that we are beyond this. This is a call for continual vigilance. I think of Psalm 141.5 often. It says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Again, as we think about Peter here being confronted by Paul, Paul tells us what he said to Peter, but there's a lot in this that we're not told. And this doesn't mean that we're to be impartial, that we're to be skeptical of absolutely everybody but just rather that we are to be prepared and ready to preserve the truth of the gospel wherever we might find it under attack. Faithfully contending for the gospel requires impartial judgment and confrontation. Secondly, faithfully contending for the gospel calls for the fear of God over the fear of man. So Paul confronted Peter Because Peter stood condemned, condemned, we're told that in verse 11, and now in verse 12, Paul will explain why it was that Peter stood condemned. He says, for before, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So when Peter first arrived in Antioch, everything was fine, everything was normal at first. Peter was in fellowship with the Jewish and Gentile Christians, and this was signified in their table fellowship. They were all eating together. There was no division. 
This was so because Peter believed the gospel that one is justified by God's grace through faith alone, uh, not of works. And so there was no issue here. Peter was not insisting on Jewish food laws at this time. There was no barrier based on Jewish ceremonial laws like circumcision or the food laws. These are not necessary for salvation. In fact, uh, no works will justify anybody. And so these food laws now are things that are actually indifferent. They're not even part of God's abiding moral law. They are things that are indifferent. You can eat what you like. So food is not to be a barrier to fellowship in any way. He learned this, Peter did, as we read in Acts chapter 10. He read that and he began to live consistently with that. Now we read in Acts 10 that it was a struggle for Peter to grasp that. He had this vision and even in the vision he's arguing with with the Lord. Uh, He doesn't want to eat these things. But then he learned the truth and he went and he did eat and and he went on to live that way. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, we stopped at the end of, of chapter 10, but right at the beginning of Acts 11, he's confronted and he's called out and criticized by the circumcision party that you were eating. He's accused of having eaten with these Gentiles and he has to defend himself and he does defend himself in chapter 11 and his argument uh, appears to win the day there. And yet, at a later point, he finds himself in Antioch and he responds differently under pressure. We're told here that certain men came from James, and that's when things shifted for him. Now, I would argue that James, the James in Galatians, is actually the brother of Jesus, who was a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. We see that in the book of Acts, and this is the James that wrote the book of James. And some argue that there's this, that this text here, that these men came from James and this problem began, and based on what you know, a misunderstanding, I think, of James chapter 2. Some argue that there really truly was a deep divide between a Pauline type of Christianity and James, and they get, go at it over this matter of justification by faith alone. But I think this is simply telling us that these men are from Jerusalem, and they came to Antioch with some sort of connection to James, but we should be careful how much we read into this. We shouldn't take it to mean that they accurately necessarily represent James or, or that James himself was advocating for the same thing as the circumcision party or he was you know, part of that circumcision party. These men that came from James may not have even been part of the circumcision party. Uh, all we know is that when they came, that's when things changed and all of a sudden he and many others started fearing this circumcision party who did advocate that in order to be saved, you must keep the law. I think there are a number of ways that we might understand what's going on here. It's, it's hard to resolve it all. We're trying to read into this. How is this, what, what all was going on? Who exactly were these men from James? What exactly was going on? But again, remember, Paul has already asserted for us that that James and Paul agreed on the gospel when he was there earlier. And so I think all he's doing here is showing us that whether the error is found in men that are from James, this pillar of the church, or whether it's his friend Barnabas or many of of the Jewish Christians in his own church, or whether it's Peter himself, If the error creeps in that corrupts the gospel, Paul is prepared to take his stand, and as should we all. And so when these men showed up, Peter's practice began to change. Also, we might notice that Paul's rebuke here is really just aimed at at Peter, not, not James himself. But anyways, when these men showed up, Peter's practice began to change. It says he drew back and separated himself. In verses 13 and 14, which we'll see in a moment, Paul calls this an act of hypocrisy, something that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Again, the truth of the gospel is that food laws count for nothing when it comes to one's salvation. Again, they're not even part of God's abiding moral law. There's no good reason to begin separating from brothers and sisters in Christ on account of diet. 
It is action that isn't keeping with sound doctrine and the gospel specifically. We'll come back to that. But notice here first what motivated Peter. It says he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The fear of man came in, and Peter acted in such a way as to undermine the gospel that he preached and believed. What was needed in this moment was for the fear of God to triumph over the fear of man. And yet that is not what happened in the case of Peter. Again, the gospel is God's message, and we are merely his servants and ambassadors. We are stewards of that message. And and fearing man is a path to all kinds of sin, including compromising our biblical convictions and even the gospel itself. And we might wonder at Peter's response here. How and why at this point does he cave in this way? Uh, This is the same man who showed such courage in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, We might think of Peter, you know, when he denies Jesus on the night he's betrayed, and think, well, it kind of makes sense with that Peter. But then we get into the early chapters of Acts, and we see such boldness in Peter as he preaches at the day of Pentecost. Even um, when he's threatened in Acts chapter 4, after being arrested by this council in Jerusalem, and, and, and threatened not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And he gives us that, he and John give us that line that we know so well that, um, that we must obey God rather than man. They just defy this direct order because they have to obey God. The fear of God is before their eyes and they must uh, uh, obey God and not man. And, and they proceed to, to preach and there's such courage. And so it's so, such a, uh, it's kind of shocking to then read this account of, of what happened at a later date in Antioch. We're not told all the details, but often fear will cause us to rationalize our compromise and our sin. And it's very possible that that's precisely what happened to Peter here. We know that Peter had a ministry that was predominantly aimed at Jewish people. Paul himself has said that. We saw that last week. And it could be that when these men came from James, Peter began to think as he's thinking about reaching these Jews that are around that do not yet believe in Christ. He doesn't want to do anything offensive to them. And and if he finds the meeting with Gentiles, they might not even hear the gospel anymore. And so you know, yeah, maybe, maybe it is better if I just don't eat with Gentiles for the sake of, you know, the Jews who don't yet believe. And perhaps that's what was going on. We're not told that's possible. Certainly, that is how the fear of man often works. Uh, we're threatened with something and we begin to think, well, you know, maybe this isn't that important or I can just do this and that. And, 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 and if I just, you know, give a little bit here, it's not a big deal and, and it's for the greater good and so on. We know that Paul himself tells us that when he would go, that he tried to be all things to all people. That when he would go into a place to reach Jews, to evangelize Jewish people, he would indeed eat their food laws. We saw even uh, in in, uh, Acts chapter 16, Timothy becomes circumcised. um, And and, and that was was all because they wanted to go in and and, and reach the Jews and not put any offense uh, in front of them. But the context here of Peter's situation is a little bit different. Paul never thought that any of those laws, circumcision, food laws, had had any bearing on one's salvation. It was just simply so they might hear him. It's a thing indifferent. So he'll, he'll do it if it gives him a hearing. But in Antioch, it was different. This was a setting in which there were Gentile and Jewish Christians together. And his withdrawing, Peter's withdrawing from the Gentile Christians, communicated to them, this action communicated to them that they were not truly in, that they were not yet truly Christians because they were not observing this law. And so regardless of how Peter may have rationalized this or why he did what he did, we do know that there was fear that motivated him, a fear of those who were promoting circumcision. This was at the root. 
But by contrast, as we have seen, Paul was filled with the fear of God more than the fear of man. And so he rebuked Peter for this error. This is God's message. Paul is just a steward of it. And so he cannot stand idly by, nor can he go along with this, regardless of what the consequences may be. And so he speaks. The fear of man is a poison. It is something for us to be on guard against continually. We must lift our eyes to the Almighty to see again His greatness, to be reminded of His greatness. This is another reason, very practical reason, why we would study God, study theology proper, the the doctrine of God, to try to grasp something more of His greatness, that we might ultimately fear and honor and awe Him even over man. Isaiah chapter 51, verses 6 and 7 says this, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. The Lord is addressing there his people, those who truly believe in him, who know his righteousness, whose, who's, uh, uh, sorry, the people in whose heart is my law, true believers. The Lord says, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. This is the, the, the thing we need to Uh, imprint upon our minds and to meditate upon that we might not be those who fear man but rather fear God that we might be willing to take our stand whenever and wherever necessary there will be many and various pressures for us to compromise the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints and the fear of God is a major aid to us and help in staying the course Third thing, faithfully contending for the gospel involves guarding against hypocritical behavior that undermines it. Faithfully contending for the gospel involves guarding against hypocritical behavior that undermines it. We are never told here that Peter actually preached with his words, with his mouth, a different gospel. In fact, the indications here in this text are that he never stopped believing in justification by faith alone. And this is precisely why Paul calls Peter's actions hypocrisy. He didn't actually believe that separation from the Gentiles was necessary, nor that food laws were necessary to be saved. Fear is what drove him, and it drove him to act hypocritically, contrary to the gospel that he believed and preached. Verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Twice it's called hypocrisy. They preach one thing. They normally act in accordance with that, not making anything of these food laws. But now they've begun acting inconsistently with what they preach and believe and have have been practicing. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is demonstrating here, he's revealing Paul or Peter's hypocrisy. Peter didn't keep the food laws, nor separate and discriminate on that basis. Certainly since the time of Acts chapter 10, that's not how he lived. And in that sense, that's what he means when he says that you live like a Gentile. You're not keeping these food, you weren't keeping these food laws. But now here he is in Antioch, forcing by his actions and his leadership, forcing the Gentiles around him to live like Jews. That is to keep these food laws. 
His hypocritical actions and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians with him, this was preaching a sermon to Gentile Christians. Peter's actions were saying that if you want to have full fellowship with us, if you want to truly be in and be a Christian, to be saved, you must keep the law. You must come under Jewish law. You must eat only as we eat, and presumably you must be circumcised as well. His actions were preaching that one is justified not just by faith alone in Christ Jesus, but by trusting Christ and doing these works of the law. Faith was not enough to make them full covenant members and heirs of salvation. More was required. This is what the actions were communicating. This was the logical conclusion of Peter's behavior, even if those words didn't come out of his mouth. And so his actions, Paul says, were not in step, not in accordance with, not straight in line with the truth of the gospel. This is how Martin Luther says it. He says, so Paul says here that Peter, Barnabas, and and other Jews, the other Jews, had the gospel But they walked not uprightly according to the gospel. For albeit they preached the gospel, yet through their hypocrisy they established the law. But the establishing of the law is the abolishing of the gospel. So again, as we have said before and we will continue to see through Galatians, if one wants to assert that you must keep some aspect, even one aspect of God's law in order to be justified, then the logic of it is you have to then keep all of God's law perfectly and perpetually in order to be justified by works of the law. Because that is what the scriptures teach. If you want to seek justification and right standing before God by law, you can't, even, even if someone says, well, you just have to be circumcised or just have to keep the food laws, you can't say that because the scriptures teach you have to keep all of it. You have to be perfect if you want to go about obtaining righteousness by the law. You've got to keep it all. And so this is why this is such a big deal for Paul, because Peter is overthrowing the gospel in his actions and establishing the law. And this will only end in complete and utter disaster and an overthrow of the gospel eventually, even in his preaching. You can be justified by works of the law, in which case you would have to keep God's law perfectly and perpetually and never mess it up even once. Or the only other way is to be accounted righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, not through any work of the law. And this is what... Peter says very clear, Paul says very clearly in verse 16, and we'll look at that next time. So Peter had preached salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but his actions now preach that one is justified by grace through faith and through works of the law. At best, this hypocrisy would confuse and cause damage, and at worst, it would lead to the actual overthrow of the good news as everyone would begin to believe in the necessity of works to form part of the grounds of their right standing before God. Again, the good news is that Jesus Christ has accomplished all the work that is necessary for one to be saved and accounted righteous before God. He has perfectly obeyed God's law. He took our sins upon himself and died in our place to satisfy God's wrath against us for our sins. He takes our sins and we in exchange, in a glorious exchange, receive Christ's righteousness credited to our account, not because of anything we've done, but simply received through faith, through believing in Christ Jesus. Again, verse 16, we'll come to this more next time, but we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Faith is the alone instrument by which we are justified, by which we receive the gift of salvation. For Peter, his actions were hypocritical and they were out of step with this truth. Notice here that our defense of the gospel and our contending for it is not just a doctrinal matter where we must confess the right truths in our hearts and have a sound doctrinal understanding and formulation of the gospel that is true. But we could have that as Peter did and yet still undermine that message or contradict it in our actions. Now, I think that obviously Scripture tells us that we should be on guard against all type of hypocrisy and against any sin which might bring reproach upon Christ. But I don't think that every sin and every hypocrisy necessarily undermines the gospel message like Peter's did here. His actions betrayed justification by faith alone, very specifically. So in our preserving and defending the gospel, we should be aware of areas where our actions might be approaching or could approach this kind of betrayal of the gospel that we really do believe and proclaim. I think there are a number of ways that, I, I think there could be a number of ways that churches and, and Christians today could act out of step with the truth of the gospel, uh, similar to what Peter did here. I just want to maybe mention a couple that, that come to mind. I think it's possible that one could inadvertently head in this direction of undermining the gospel with a, a um, having a subtle division maybe of, of Christians within the church into kind of maybe two categories or two different tiers, two different classes of Christians. Maybe insinuating in your actions or your attitude that someone is maybe not fully in unless X, Y, and Z. Certainly, maturity is a thing that we grow into, which means that in any church, there's going to be people on the spectrum of maturity. I don't deny this. But when it comes to our standing before God, every Christian stands upon the exact same ground. Your maturity is never the ground of your salvation. The brand new believer and the old, wise, respected, mature believer stand on the exact same ground. Both are saved by the same grace of God received with an empty hand. The thief on the cross gets in on the same ground as Peter, as Paul, as anybody else. And so there is full and true fellowship here. We are not to look down on others for not having attained to a certain height. We don't withdraw from others over that. So that's one way that we could possibly err heading that direction. Obviously, if we make matters of conscience or things indifferent, the test of orthodoxy, that's another potential error in this regard. We might preach justification by faith alone in Christ alone, but we might in reality and in practice make the test for others our own conscience. We might demand that everybody agree with our own conscience on every single issue, and that could, even unwittingly, be the test of orthodoxy. 
course, Scripture gives us instruction on dealing with such matters of conscience. It's surprising direction in some cases. Romans 14, one, one place where you can read about that. Many churches have the true gospel written down on a piece of paper as part of their doctrinal statement, but then in their practice, they never really speak of it. Instead, the S emphasis is on something else altogether. Perhaps it's on loving God and loving others. And that's presented as really the essence of the Christian faith. If this is what's always communicated, even if they don't call it the gospel, or they don't formally deny the gospel, it can still functionally come to replace the gospel. It can undermine it by a constant emphasis on all the things that you've got to do. And this can be the case with any kind of mission drift. If the emphasis is always on something else, some sort of, it could be a, 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 some sort of justice cause, however one conceives of it, the effect can be the same. We might have the gospel written correctly on a piece of paper that we say we confess, but if all of our activity and our preaching has little or nothing to do with actually proclaiming that, we might be betraying it. Another way that churches might walk out of step with the truth of the gospel is we might preach and stress repentance in such a way that it gives the hearer the impression that they need to clean up to a certain amount of holiness before they trust Christ or rest in his promises and what he has accomplished. Certainly repentance is something we call unbelievers to, to acknowledge their sinful condition before God, to agree with what God's word says about their sinfulness, and then to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes we can hammer on it so hard that if somebody doesn't feel constantly this awfulness over their sin, maybe, you know, maybe you sh you're not really in. Uh, that, that can happen. Where we cause people to constantly look to the quality of their own repentance for assurance of their salvation. And because their quality of their repentance is not always awesome, they constantly or continually lack assurance because they're looking not to Christ and what he has accomplished, but ultimately to their own ability to be sorry enough and repentant enough. It's possible that that could lead us in this kind of a direction as well. There are probably many other ways that this could happen. But again, what we see here is the need to be just on guard against behavior, I guess any type of action, activity, hypocritical or otherwise, that would betray or undermine the gospel of God's grace that we proclaim. Paul's concern in Galatians, again, is the truth of the gospel. And this is a deposit that we are called to preserve as a church and as individuals. And this requires impartiality of us, a willingness to confront errors and corruptions of the gospel wherever we find it, wherever it might arise. This calls for the fear of God to overcome our fear of man. It involves guarding against hypocritical behavior that would undermine its message. And just in closing, I would also remind you that our ability to discern and preserve the gospel is not itself the gospel. We are not saved by our ability to do this perfectly. We are not saved by this work. Where we fail, we confess that. Where we are weak, we acknowledge that. We pray for the Lord's help in it. We confess our sins in these areas and we rejoice in Christ's work. We remind ourselves of what Christ has accomplished for us. We remind ourselves that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Paul doesn't give us the outcome in this text of this confrontation with Peter. 
but we can safely infer it from the rest of the Bible. Peter confessed his sin, and I would suggest he righted the matter here in Antioch. He went on to continue to preach the gospel, the one true gospel, and to seek to live in light of it. We have his letters that very likely, First and Second Peter, written later than Galatians. We read of no other ongoing feud between Peter and Paul. Peter confessed his sin. He righted the matter. Once more, Peter is a reminder to us that God is indeed gracious with his people. And so let us not forget this, even as we consider a task so great as contending for the faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanksgiving for your graciousness and your kindness. Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who hold fast to Christ. That we would look away from all of our activity and place our hope of righteousness in Christ Jesus alone. Father, forgive us where we have failed, where the fear of man has overwhelmed us. We thank you for this reminder that even someone like the Apostle Peter was not beyond such a struggle. Help us to not grow weary in this life. We thank you that in Christ you have hushed the law's loud thunder, that though we stand condemned by your law, Christ Jesus took that condemnation upon himself and satisfied your wrath. And so we are not under the judgment of your law any longer if we are trusting in your son. May this give us tremendous joy and may we be able to embrace and live in the liberty that comes from this. And Father, I pray that this would be truth that we would long for people to know. That men and women would indeed feel the burden of their sinfulness before you, that they might flee to Christ and rest in his work. Father, help us to be discerning, to grow in our discernment. Help us to be those who are loving and patient with one another. Father, give us humility. Give us courage and strength and help us, God, to above all fear you. We thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.